So we finished Haggai last week, and I'm not completely sure where we're going next. I was really thinking Galatians. Um, I talked to Pastor Mike out of Bellevue a few weeks ago, and he was thinking of doing Galatians, and we kicked around the idea of, you know, doing a series together. Um, But I really felt like we needed to go through Haggai first, and then... I'm just, I was not ready to start Galatians this morning, so uh, here's where we are. Um, Psalm 19 this morning for sure, and then possibly Galatians next week. We'll see what happens, but let me pray and then we'll read this. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together to worship, and we thank you for the privilege of worship that we can um, come in this place and sing these songs, and because of the the new heart that you've given each of your children, we can be worshipers in spirit and truth. Uh, we want to, we just want to magnify you for that. Um, to stand here and sing is nothing; it's meaningless. Um, to sit here and listen to this sermon is nothing and meaningless. Except, Holy Spirit, that you anoint us to sing. And, and it be meaningful, and you anoint us to speak and to hear your word, and it be meaningful to us. So with that in mind, um, that we are privileged this morning, we ask for your help. We ask that you would use your word to change our hearts, and the way that we think and the way that we operate would be a reflection of those changed hearts. We can't do it but you can and you've promised that you will. So we, we plead with you for that kindness. Jesus, we thank you for living even today and being victorious over the sin which so easily entangles us that we might sit in this place for a little while this morning and, and put aside the cares and worries of life and all of the trappings of the remaining corruption that we contend with. We can just be here and be loved by you because you are victorious over sin. We praise you for that. Father, we thank you for your heart toward us. Um, You would be well within your right to reject us except that you sent your son and with him a promise that you cannot deny. And you did that because you love us and you wanted to redeem us. We thank you and we praise you for that. Holy Spirit, we leave this time in, in the word of God to you. And we entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> Psalm 19, I'm going to read the whole thing. <clears throat> it says, well, the, the intro says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit. to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony 
of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much and fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his own errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is um, one of those psalms that requires no background, no occasion. We don't have to cross-reference and find some historical event that it corresponds to because it just has universal application and implication. Um, If you're a note taker, what I'm going to do is divide this into three parts. The first part is verses 1 through 7, and this is the, the, the celebration of the book of nature, God's book of nature. Um, Oh, by the way, I've stolen this from Charles Spurgeon, so lest you think I'm inventive. The second part is going to be verses 8 through 11, and this is a celebration of God's book of Scripture. And then the last part, 12, 13, and 14, will be what I call the respondent plea for grace. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Um, I, I spent a long time thinking about, okay, yeah, when obviously everybody reads this verse and they go, that's true. When you look up at the sky, it's an amazing thing to behold what God has done in all of space, right? But I wanted to illustrate this in a way that especially Matt's kids would appreciate and pay attention to. Um, they won't, but the rest of us will. One of the most exhilarating experiences that I ever had, and I've had it twice now, is driving through the southern Appalachian Mountains in Georgia. Um, And those mountains, distinct from the Rockies, because there's a certain terror that accompanies driving through the Rocky Mountains, surrounded by psychopathic mountain dwellers in their Toyota Sequoias and Chevy Tahoes going 110 miles an hour at all times at 10,000 feet with signs that say, beware of falling rocks, as though there were anything you could do about it if one did fall, right? Other than veer off the cliff and die that way. Um, They're breathtaking. The Rockies are breathtaking. But I am much happier closer to sea level. And the Appalachian Mountains in in southern Georgia are only about 4,600 feet, but you get the same kind of views, if not even a little bit better, because you'll be driving along surrounded by cliff faces covered in trees, and suddenly you'll emerge uh, above this plateau that's got a beautiful lake fed by some wandering river that I I won't bother to look up the name of because I'm driving, but it's a stunning thing to behold. 
Um, and because you're not at 10,000 feet being driven off the road, but you're at 4,000 surrounded by vehicles that probably won't survive whatever journey they're on, they drive with a lot more caution and you can just enjoy the scenery. I like it a lot. Give me a white sand beach and I'm really happy. The, the songwriter Daryl Scott wrote a song called You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. Some of you have probably heard it. Um, some of you, like me, probably love it and think that you're from Kentucky every time you hear it. Um, Brad Paisley recorded a version of it that most of you might be familiar with. And one of the things that he says in this song is, the sun comes up at 10 in the morning and the sun goes down at 3 in the day. Because when you're in the mountains... It might be light out, but you can't see the sun until it gets high enough to be above the peaks. And then very quickly, it's low enough that you don't see it anymore. And it's a remarkable thing. Our last trip was during autumn. And the scenery, as you can imagine, was breathtaking. And I will confess that I considered staying there forever, even though I was just driving through. Um, an amazing thing happens, though, to me, and this is just me, when I'm coming back home a week later and you're, you know, driving through the meandering highways of Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois and the horrible Missouri, um, sorry, Jenny, um, and Kyle and Candy, they're not here. And actually, this happened when we were coming back from Colorado last summer, too. You, you, as you come out of the mountains, and everything starts to kind of level off. I know I'm in the minority here, but when you get on the plains, I feel like I'm at home Amen. because you have 180 degrees of sky. And I love the big sky and the big sky country. David didn't have the benefit of ever road tripping out of the mountains onto the plains, but he did have something that we don't because we've ruined the night sky with electricity and city lights, David could at night look outside and see something truly breathtaking. And just to emphasize the point, I put together a little slideshow of what the night sky looks like when you're not surrounded by city lights. And hopefully Kate or Audrey can put it up on the screen. Okay, so... That's the Milky Way, right? And most of us are familiar with this in pictures. If you were in the Navy, then you're probably familiar with it in person, where you can look up and see the tendrils of our spiraling solar system cast across the sky. And what you're seeing in those little dots often is actually another galaxy way off in, in, in the infinite regions of space. But we can see it all the way on earth. So if you're David and you look up at this at night and you don't have the benefit of all of the like equanimity that comes with NASA and having seen you know, rockets launching into space or the benefit of a telescope and being able to see these things and somewhat understand them, when you look at that, what you see is the heavens declaring the glory of God. Yeah. We just don't get to see it. So I have to satisfy myself with 180 degrees of blue sky. 
And I'll spare you my lengthy dissertation on how vast space is and assume that most of you understand what's implied by the description uh, from David of the sky being God's handiwork. Verse two says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So David's telling us that the sky, which is a piece of creation, testifies of the glory of God. Look at Romans chapter one, because there's a, there's a doctrinal truth at work here that, well, I'm hesitant to say what's essential and what's not. I, I don't want to ever insinuate that there's a doctrinal truth that isn't essential, but this may be among the most essential to us in the modern age. In Romans 1, 19, I'll skip the wrath of God. 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. And he's talking about all people. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The doctrinal truth that's essential that we understand, simply put, is this. There is enough revelation of God's existence in nature for mankind to be held accountable for the worship of him. Let me say it again. When you look out at the heavens declaring the handiwork of God, what's happening is you are becoming responsible for the worship of the creator that is insinuated in the creation. When you see what he's made, you're responsible to worship him. And that's what David's telling us. The heavens are declaring day-to-day pours, pours out speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge. You may object to this idea that there's enough revelation in creation for all mankind to be accountable to God. You can object to it, but I just want to assure you that your quarrel is not with me. It's with the Bible, which means your quarrel is with God, and your quarrel with him is not in the book of nature, but in the book of Scripture. That's where he says you're accountable. He doesn't write it in the sky that you're accountable, but you are. There is no speech, verse 3, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. So there's no audible speech coming from the sky. No words, nothing, is, nothing that we can hear. Yet a voice goes out through the whole earth declaring that there is a creator. And this is an amazing consideration. Y'all love nature documentaries, I'm sure, like me. You watch them, and it's, it's especially the, like the deep sea ones, are incredible because all of that's going on down there and has been going on down there since the beginning of creation, and we're only just now becoming aware of it now that we have the technology to get down that deep with cameras and lights. You can imagine what's going on out in space. Well, you can't, right? I love those documentaries because they inform me of the majesty of the creator. 
right? In spite of the fact that invariably in all those documentaries, what the scientists and, and thus David Attenbaugh, the narrator, turns to is descriptions of evolution and how creation just kind of came up with all of this on its own. That doesn't make me mad. I don't, you know, resent that. I'm not insecure about whether God created everything or not. So I'm able to observe all of these things. And then, you know, the, 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 my appreciation transmits from the observable thing in creation to the unobservable creator, right? But what the psalm is saying is that before our eyes even come down from looking up, before we ever notice the flora and the fauna all around us, there is enough evidence for us to be accountable. Before we ever see a moving creature, there's enough evidence in creation for us to be accountable for the worship of the creator. That's kind of stunning to think about. And in those skies, he has established a dwelling place for the sun. So verse 5 talks about the sun and says, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, meaning the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. I want to be really clear. Poetic, descriptive language in, in the Psalms about objects in nature, such as the sun, are not meant to communicate to us that David worshipped the sun or that he really thought the sun was a person. I only mention it because in the Hebrew, the... Oh, man, I forgot what these are called. It's... What part of speech is the word it's? Not contractual. Possessive pronoun. pronoun. Thank you. Uh, who said that? Smart you said it because right, it sounded like it came from over there. And I'm like, if Carrie said it, I believe it. <laughs> uh, in the Hebrew, getting back on track, if you look at verse five, the son comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. That his there before chamber is the only anthropomorphized pronoun that we have. The rest of them are all object pronouns. It's, it's, it's. So David's not confused. The sun's not a person. He does not worship Apollo nor Ra, the sun god of Egypt. And it's important that we know that because there are those, and I'm sure we'll learn this on Thursday nights as we're going through how we got the canon of scripture. There are those who would say that all of the Abrahamic religions have their roots in Mesopotamic cult religions that worship nature. That's not what's happening here. We're not saying that we worship nature. What we're saying is the observance of nature causes our worship to terminate on the creator of nature, right? Have I beat that horse to death yet? The sun is not the creator, but testifies that there is one. And this is also important because another fascinating consideration is when you eat, listen uh, carefully, and I'll say this carefully. When you eat, you are eating the sun at the end of the day. Because without it, nothing grows. If nothing grows, we have nothing to eat. So it, with the exception of processed foods, what you're eating is the, there's no sun in Oreos or those donuts, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, that's true, I guess. 
The inclusion of the final statement in verse 6, nothing is hidden from its heat, is a period on the end of David's remarks on the, on the testimony of the sky, right? I'm convinced that this consideration of the scope of the sun's impact is designed to make us think of the scope of God's gaze. In Hebrews 4.13, the writer says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now that's talking about God. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we will give an account. Had David said, nothing is hidden from the sun's light, we might take exception and say, if you go into a cave and it's pitch black, the sun's light isn't there, right? But he doesn't say that. It says nothing is hidden from its heat on earth, right? So we're putting a categorical or catalogical, catalogical, whatever, limitation on nothing. We're saying everything on earth is affected by the heat of the sun. Amen? We're okay with that? All right. The reality is that even the coldest places on earth have life in them because of the sun and because of its heat. There is nothing which is not reached by the heat of the sun, and there is nothing which is not reached by the watchful eyes of God. There's nowhere you can go to escape his gaze. It's always there. I have done nothing which is not well known by God. And you have done nothing which is not well known by God. And if that doesn't cause a little piece of you to be uncomfortable and shudder, then you have a seared conscience that does not function. Because all of us have done things we are deeply and profoundly grateful no other human being knows about. Right? Or maybe just a very limited number of other human beings know about. Verses 7 through 11, the book of Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And they're more desirable than riches and, and any delicious thing that you could eat. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So each of these nouns has a purpose, and this is not a redundant poetic list of different ways to describe the word of God. They, they each have their design. The first one, the law is perfect, reviving the soul. The word here is Torah which a lot of you probably already know, describes the written word of God. At that time, would have amounted to probably the first three or four books of the Bible when David wrote this. Possibly the account of the judges had already been put together. I'm not sure, and neither is anybody else. Um, so David's switching gears. First part of the psalm is about the first book, the book of observable nature. The second part is about his second book, the book of scripture. So I would ask you a question, agree or disagree? This is audience participation time. Agree or disagree? God's written word revives my soul. 
Okay, good. Second, the testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Contextually, testimony means instructions. Audience participation part two. <laughs> is there wisdom found in God's instructions to us? Yes. All right, I had a fantastic conversation with uh, somebody at work about a month ago about this, where um, this person was trying to erode the validity and usefulness of the scriptures. And so I quoted, I don't know, a half dozen proverbs to him that no human being can argue with and just pointed out there's wisdom here. There, there is, I didn't attempt to insinuate that the word of God would revive this person's soul, but I did insinuate that there's wisdom found in God's instructions. Practically speaking, there just is, right? All right, good. Third is precepts are right. Rejoicing the heart. Oh, man. I hope I'm not losing everybody. I'm trying to move quick and keep it snappy without lecturing. I feel like I need a laser pointer sometimes. All right, here, you see precepts. <laughs> precepts are rules designed to guide thoughts and behaviors. Children, do your parents have precepts? Do they have rules that are designed to guide your thoughts and behaviors? And the answer is yes. You know that your parents have rules because you're not allowed to do certain things that you would like to do. Your, your conduct is guided by those precepts. Can you violate those precepts? Can you break the rules? Yes. Is it fun when you get caught having done so? No, it's not. It's fun when you get away with it, right? <laughs> So let's dive a little bit deeper on this one because God, his parameters for our thoughts and behaviors when followed, rejoice the heart. That's what this is saying. Well, let's figure out how. Well, actually, let me do this. Do we believe that God's parameters for our thoughts and behaviors rejoice our hearts? Don't answer yet. Because some people in here, if they were honest, would say no. And I don't want them to be peer pressured into saying yes, just because the rest of us do. 1 John 3. Um, again, the question at hand is... Do God's parameters for our thoughts and behaviors, when followed, do they rejoice the heart? 1 John 3, 18, uh, which is the end of a paragraph in my Bible, but it's okay. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Okay, listen, please, because this is very important. And if you don't listen, if you tune out, you're going to struggle needlessly with a giant element of the Christian experience. If you pay attention and get this... We should all go out there and cheer. Yeah. <laughs> It's a nice day. Um, if you pay attention and get this, I really think it'll help you. 
I didn't listen the first time this was taught to me and struggled for a decade as a result to understand it, okay? And I'm not blaming anybody for that but myself. By this, verse 19, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. We already saw in Hebrews 4.13 and in Psalm 19, there's nothing that escapes God's notice. He knows everything. Now think about what's being insinuated by 1 John 3.20 when it says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything, okay? My heart is condemning me why? Well, because I've probably done something outside of the precepts or the principles by which God is trying to guide my thoughts and behaviors, right? So when I violate God's principles for my thoughts and behaviors, my own heart says, you idiot, you fool, why are you doing that, right? That's my own heart. That's not God speaking to me from the heavens because he doesn't. He speaks through his word. He speaks quietly through the spirit, through leading and guiding and reminders and conviction. But my own heart calls me names that I would never call anybody else. Do you all do that too? Okay. John says, God's greater than that. And he knows everything. 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Oh, I agree with that. When my heart is not going, you idiot, you fool. I have more confidence to boldly approach God than when my heart is saying, you idiot, you fool. Because when my heart's telling me I'm an idiot and a fool, I assume God certainly probably agrees with it because if I've evaluated my own conduct and found it wanting, how much more so is he evaluating my conduct and finding it wanting? That's how I think in my limited human capacity. But what he says is, 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There it is, confirmation. When your heart condemns you, God is infinitely more condemning you. If you would just do what he commanded, then he'd give you what you want. But look at the last verse here, 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. When our circumstances go bad and we're struggling, is it easier to bear the bad, difficult circumstances when we've been being obedient to God? Is it easier to deal with difficult circumstances in life when you have this comfort? God's with me. Yeah, it is. Let's hear from this side of the room because I'm not sure my voice is reaching over there. When your life gets hard, isn't it made a little bit better when you know that God loves you and cares about you? Yeah, all right. We'll make Baptists out of all of you. Yeah. When our circumstances go bad and we're struggling, you guys go first. Okay, you're going to go first. When our circumstances go bad and we're struggling, is it not infinitely more painful to endure 
when we're guilty. Shh. It's their turn. Is it not infinitely more difficult to deal with difficult circumstances when you also have a guilty conscience? Three people think it is. Let's, let's see about I'm just joking. We're not going to do that. Lest we fall into the trap of works-based righteousness. Verse 23 tells us this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. What commandment does John always have in view when he's writing this stuff? Because he does it in chapter 6 of his gospel as well. In verse 23, the people that are listening to Jesus say, What are the works of the Lord that we might do them? And Jesus himself says, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. All right. I want to be in right relationship with my creator. I want my own condemnatory heart to shut up, please, and stop calling me a fool and an idiot and a scoundrel. That's what I want. I want my own heart to be like my father's heart and be full of love for him and for you all. Okay? How do you make that happen? Stop sinning, okay? Barring that, how do you make it so that your heart resonates with the cords of love that flow from your Father in heaven? How do you, you believe in Jesus Christ whom he has sent? That's the commandment, believe. So when the man who's pleading with Jesus to heal his daughter says, if you're able to do something for her, will you? And Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for them that believe. The man says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. That's us. I do believe in you, Jesus, but help my unbelief. Like, make me believe more. Make me more confident in who you are and what you've done and what your heart is towards sinners. That's what we want. That's what we need. So, does that precept, believe in Jesus Christ, does that precept rejoice your heart? Does knowing that this is what God requires of you, believe in Jesus, does that rejoice your heart? Yeah. What does God require of us? Like self-loathing and self-sacrifice and get out the salise belt and the sackcloth and ashes? Or does he say in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Isn't that what he said? Fourth, the commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Does the word of God make us see things we never saw before? Thank you, Gail. And was that, did Lee get in on that or was that Lee? Let's try you all again. <laughs> Does the word of God make us see things that we never saw before? Yes. yes. All right. And you all agree, right? Uh, fifth, the fear of, <laughs> fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. All right. I'll be honest. I know I talked for a long time about number three, the precepts. But fifth is by far my favorite, by far my favorite, because here's what I know. You can drum negative emotion down to three things. There's fear, there's shame, and there's guilt. 
In the human experience, all other negative emotions can be summed up in those three, fear, shame, and guilt. There are many things over the course of my life which I have been afraid of, which also produced in me a corresponding shame and then a corresponding guilt. I was afraid to speak up. I was afraid to face that. I was afraid and I ran away. I was afraid of the monster in the basement. I was afraid of like darkness, like whatever. And then there's this shame and guilt that comes along with it. There is a fear that is clean, that does not produce also shame and guilt. And that is the fear of God because he is a fearful, fearful God. It's only right to have a certain sense of dread when you contemplate the Lord of all creation who sits on high judging all of the world and seeing every detail of every thought that ever goes through your heart. That should make you fearful. And to the preacher who says, no, 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 we're not supposed to be afraid of God. The Bible's talking about reverent awe. I would strongly disagree with you. Strongly disagree. There should be holy terror when you consider having to do with him who made everything, judging you for your own sin. God is not to be trifled with. He is not indifferent to sin. He is not impressed by mankind's indignation or anger. He's not deceived by our lies or distracted by our cover-ups. He is not concerned with man's plans to overthrow him. You cannot negotiate with the immovable, unchangeable, holy God who measures the immeasurable universe in the span of his hands. You can't negotiate with him. You have nothing that he needs. In Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. There's a picture that Jesus paints of Jesus as the stone, right? It's a stone of judgment, which is yet to come. That day is coming. Before he came as the savior of the world, when he returns, he will be the savior of all them that believed, but he will be a rock of judgment and offense to all them that did not. When you come to saving faith in Christ, part of the experience, universally, every Christian has it, is that there is a holy fear of God and his judgment and his potential wrath. And there is a certain amount of emotional pain that comes with the recognition that I've transgressed the the pleasure of the God who created me. There is guilt, fear, and shame that accompanies the initial part of salvation. It hurts to come to Christ because you must First, die. Your desires must be put to death. Your heart of stone must be taken out, and God must put in you a heart of flesh. It's painful. You get hurt when you fall on that rock. But if you don't, and that rock falls on you, there is no recovery. It destroys you utterly. God is most certainly to be feared, But David tells us that this fear, unlike all other fears, is clean. There is no shame or guilt in fearing God. There is 
joy in fearing God. I think the chief joy that I found in fearing God when I remember to fear God is that when you fear God, you will fear nothing else because you don't have a lot of fear left for anything else. Sixth, the rules of the Lord are true and completely righteous. This is the moral law, and no human obfuscation can change this, all right? The moral law is true and completely righteous. So here's the great apologetic of Christianity. I'll save you all of the debates and lectures and books on the subject. If you want to convince the atheist that you have something they don't, and that they can't have apart from relationship with the, with the triune creator, here's how you do it. Atheist, where does your morality come from? Where does your morality come from? If we're all just particles of stardust bumping into each other, what difference does it make if I climb over your head to get what I want? If I'm bigger and stronger and I win, that's just the way it is in nature. Why should you feel indignant when someone steals from you? Why do you resent someone who would murder you? We're just organic matter crashing into each other. What difference does it make? Why do you feel jealous when your spouse is unfaithful? Why do you seethe when someone lies about you? Unless there is a moral law that is right. God's rules are true. So certainly the child of God agrees with verses 10 and 11, right? More to be desired are they than gold, even a lot of it. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Now, if you're not like real into honey, which I'm not, I'm not real into, I don't like, I have a beard, so I don't like sticky, gooey stuff. <laughs> but you're into sugar, then just think donuts or pie, oatmeal cream pies, Right? Something absolutely delicious, but it also bears nutritional value. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. I won't belabor the point because we're basically out of time. But what is the reward of keeping the commandment we saw earlier in 1 John 3 and the one that I, men <laughs> the one that I mentioned in John 6? What's the commandment? Believe on him whom God has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. What's the reward? What's the reward for believing in Jesus? Eternal life. Life instead of death. Productivity instead of misery. Hope instead of hopelessness. That's the reward. But we have a problem, don't we? And the problem is our lives are a poor proof of that belief in Jesus. There is too much sin here to prove that we are God's children. So how does the psalm end? Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. I think I can do this in 90 seconds. Hidden faults over here, presumptuous sins over here. These are the two edges of the sin spectrum. Things I don't even know I'm doing wrong and things I know full well I'm doing wrong, right? And David covers the gamut. We have sins that we're not fully aware of. There have been many times in my life where not until later, looking back, did I realize that thing that I did was so harmful. 
And I'm not talking about the times where people make you feel retroactively guilty for something that offended them. I'm talking about the times when you transgressed God's will and purpose and law and didn't realize it until later. That's what I'm talking about. Some of those things we won't even know about until the day of judgment. But the word acquit means absolve, clear, exonerate, exculpate, declare innocent, find innocent, pronounce not guilty, discharge, release, liberate, acquit, right? Acquit me of hidden faults. Now, David prays that God would forgive those sins which we don't even have the presence of mind to confess. Do you hear me? Okay, so when you confess your sins, if you have this legalistic view that unless you say all of them out loud or at least in your head, God's not going to forgive them, that's foolish. Psalm 19 makes it clear. You can sum up a significant portion of your sins by simply saying, Lord, please equip me of hidden faults. And God must do it or I would think he wouldn't include this prayer in his perfect, pure, right, sure, clean, and true word. Second, we have sins which we went into fully aware of. Presumptuous sin is that sin which we are tempted to do, and we know that it's sin, and we go into it knowing full well that it's sin. It's presumptuous because we know it's sin before we do it, and it's presumptuous oftentimes because we enter in knowing or presuming that God will forgive us after we've done it. And the preacher who would say that sin is unforgivable is wrong. But it shouldn't make us feel okay about sinning in that way that God will most certainly forgive it. The favorite example of presumptuous sin that I know of um, happens within hours of someone becoming aware that when they did it, it would be sin. And it was this moment where Uh, Jesus has the disciples on the Mount of Olives and he's like, Peter, listen, I need to let you know that something's going to happen. You're going to deny me. And Peter's like, (laughs) never. In fact, I'll die before I deny you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And Peter is like, you're wrong, Jesus. And then within five hours, Peter is weeping bitterly because he has denied Christ thoroughly. What happens? Does he get forgiven? So what can you not confess to God? David, I would say, was also well acquainted with presumptuous sin. Um, The prayer is let them not have dominion over me. Set me free from presumptuous sins, Lord. If I could stop doing what I know is wrong, I would be virtually blameless. You agree with that? I mean, if I could just quit doing the stuff I know I shouldn't do. Finally, verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here's where what I don't do outwardly, I will do inwardly. There I have thoughts and just things that go, blasphemies that flit through my mind faster than I can get a hold of them. And I need God to make those things so that rather than blasphemies, my heart and mind is full of that which is acceptable to him. My prayer is that we would be a people who depend on grace as David does in this psalm. 
Nowhere in here does he say, uh, bring about perfect righteousness in my conduct. What he says is, forgive me for my sin, cleanse me of my unrighteousness, and make me love your law more than myself. I want us to be people who appreciate God's testimony, both in creation and in this world, and embrace by faith the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.